0: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Johal Show podcast today. On the pod, it's not a Surrey thing. Why are emergency rooms across BC facing so many challenges? And interest rates hit a 22-year high as the Bank of Canada surprises consumers with a rate hike. What's next? Plus, housing crunch. Canada needs to build more than 800,000 homes a year till 2030 just to keep up with growth. So why are we only building a quarter of that? That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Let's focus on another form of growth, and that, of course, is our health care needs, uh, specifically in Surrey. Now, Surrey's healthcare services, especially at the hospital, uh, have been under scrutiny as of late. Doctors at the hospital warned of unsafe conditions, uh, emergency room congestion, and a shortage of hospitalists. Now, Dr. Urbane Ip, the former medical director at Surrey Memorial, was on this program last week, and he told us he wouldn't send his own family members uh, to the facility and said that patients could wait up to three days before getting proper care due to a shortage of hospitalists take a
1: listen I want Fraser Health the leadership be transparent with the public and say look we do have trouble we understand that we are doing our best be patient with us if my family gets sick I know if I send them to the hospital and they need to be admitted to hospital there might not be anybody to take care of them for the first 48 to 72 hours because of the hospitalist shortage
0: that was Dr. Urbain Ip. Now, a lot has occurred since then, and today, BC's Health Minister Adrian Dix uh, announced a number of improvements at Surrey Memorial Hospital. Uh, Minister Dix joins us now. Minister, thank you for speaking to us today.
2: Good morning, Jess, or good afternoon, good I afternoon. guess. It's,
0: it's been a busy day for I mean, you, right, that's for sure. Like,
2: no, it's, it's been good. It's just, it's, just, uh, it's always morning here in Surrey. <laughs> There you go.
0: Well, today you promise uh, contracts for hospitalists, uh, hiring more staff for the emergency department, uh, uh, um, uh, and of course the maternity ward and of course mental health services as well for the hospital. How
2: long will all of this take? Um, there's immediate actions that are the work we're doing with hospitalists now around the physician workforce and service levels. There's the work we're doing with our emergency room teams to relieve patient demand, both inside the Surrey Memorial facility and in the community, increasing the number of internal medicine positions to support admitted patients. These are all significant measures, so immediate measures to support, uh, for example, increased funding for additional physician coverage, nursing and allied health services, including opening a care and triage unit in the emergency department. There's a series of immediate actions. In the medium term, Mm -hmm. many of these are within 18 months, It's expanding renal services. If you know healthcare in Surrey, as you you do, as you know, that's a very significant area of demand, Mm -hmm. the need for dialysis in the community. So we're going to be expanding that within 18 months, adding within 18 months, again, two cardiac catheterization labs at Surrey Memorial Hospital, adding a net new MRI for many people in the cardiac unit. You know, we've dramatically increased MRI in the community and around Surrey and Fraser Health but adding an additional one will reduce time that people have to wait in the the cardiac wards for some specific MRI services. The renovations of existing operating rooms and so on, those are the medium-term actions. And then we're also, as you know, we're building, of course, additional long-term care beds in Surrey. We're building a second hospital in Surrey, but as well, we're engaging in a clinical analysis, working with our healthcare workers of this site to uh, ensure that it meets the demands of Surrey in the future, and that analysis will take place, that work will take place over the next five months. Now, I don't think so any... all of those steps, short-term, medium-term, long-term. I don't
0: think any Surrey resident's going to uh, complain about greater services at the hospital, and and especially from t- with today's announcement. But it still took uh, ER doctors, hospitalists, to sign a letter. Uh, why do you think it got to this point? I mean, the announcement today is great, but why did it take a letter and uh, a constant pressure from a medical staff to get to this point?
2: Well, Jazz, as you know, um, Surrey was the worst treated community in BC for health care prior to 2017. So we had the lowest levels of MRIs capacity for, per person. We changed that. The lowest level of care for seniors and long-term care, we changed that. We're building a second Surrey hospital. It took longer because the previous government sold the land, right, under market value. Seems incredible, doesn't it, at this point. And so all of these actions are taking place. What's happened in hospitals are around BC and you've seen this. We've talked about this in January when we announced the ten thousand two hundred and twenty-six people in the hospital on January fourth. We have in all of our healthcare facilities, all our acute care facilities, an increase in the census. What does that mean? That means there's more people in the hospital. And that puts additional pressure on the system. Typically this time of year even at the high point you'd see 93 9400 people in the hospital system why do you see 9800 and those those issues are magnified in a community with, like Surrey, which has such a growing population. So we, you'll remember we took issue, me- measures in January. We're taking uh, now more by listening and working with doctors and nurses and healthcare workers in Surrey, and we're going to continue to take action where required.
0: But it, it, I, I, And I don't disagree with some of the things you're saying in regards to some of the things past government could have done, uh, but it's not 2017, it's 2023. This is also a commentary on how this present government has been handling some of the challenges in our ER rooms uh, do you think that perhaps the CEO should have been fired or the board uh, had, have uh, had some changes brought in in regards to what's transpired? Look, at the end of the day, it takes a lot for doctors to come out and sign a letter and say, this is really bad here. I wouldn't even send my own family here. And you can blame the liberals. I don't disagree with some of the things you're saying.
2: But you're you're, you're uh, six years I, I, into your mandate I, 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 now. I, 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 it's, not, it's on you, I'm is not, it not? I'm not blaming anybody. What I'm saying is that Surrey had suffered most from the previous government's health policy. Since we got here, we've invested more in Surrey than anyone else, ever. But we gotta to continue to do that because the population growth is here in Surrey. We've just been through, as I know people um, in a three year pandemic. Yep. Surrey Memorial Hospital was the hospital in BC when we had some of the circumstances in the North, when we were moving patients from the North, they had, all hospitals had to deal with that. Surrey has the most essential workers, the most people working at the beginning of the pandemic in the community, in healthcare. They had real challenges and the people at Surrey Memorial Hospital did breathtaking work about which they can be very proud. It was historically important work in this country. We've been through a three-year pandemic that put constant pressure on our healthcare system. We have other challenges like the, the, uh, the overdose public health emergency. In that time, in the time we're talking about, this hospital, Surrey Memorial Hospital, increased its operating room time by 13%. It's staggering, the success they've had. But when you have many more patients coming to the hospital, the doctors um, spoke about about that, about some of the things they thought could happen now. And we sat down, worked with them, and uh, we're implementing some of those things. And that's what you'd expect us to do. But, you know, in 2018, we started on the new Surrey Hospital. It'll be under construction this summer, right? We're starting with a long-term care home the summer. We had the lowest level of MRIs uh, for an urban community in Canada per capita. We've added seven new machines available in Fraser Health, a couple in Surrey. So- and we've moved past. And on seniors' care, it was the worst ratios of staff to patients at Surrey long-term care homes in the province, and we've changed that. So So we've made progress, we got to make more.
0: The hospital, you say, construction begins uh, uh, this summer. How long, uh, what's the time period, three years?
2: That's right. It's 28, it'll be substantially completed in 26, open in 27, and that's a significant increase because here's one of the things that it's important to recognize about Surrey is that the population has increased about 100,000 a decade. If you think of that, every decade in really our lifetimes here, it's a nine, Jeff. And and what's changed, though, and changing in the next 20 years, is Surrey has always been one of the youngest communities in B.C., which has typically put more pressure on education than on health, right, because that's where the demands were. We're going to see an increase of over 240% in people over 80 in Surrey and an increase of only 15% of those under 19, 42% overall. So what you're going to see is an aging population in Surrey. Not that Surrey will become older than other communities, it'll just return to the, it'll, it'll move to the average. And that means, the the for example, in Surrey, the largest um, cause of death in Surrey is, of course, cancer. The lot, year's lost is also cancer. Surrey will need dramatically new cancer services. And why we're building at that site of Second Cancer Centre for Surrey. It's because of that change, dynamic change in the population.
0: Minister, uh, let's say the new hospital is open and you're right, mm-hmm. Surrey is growing quickly, 1,500 residents a month. Um, I look at Vancouver. You've got Vancouver General. You've got St. Paul's, which is expanding. You've got Women's Hospital. you got Children's Hospital. Surrey has Surrey Memorial uh, and I guess next door Peace Arch Hospital, which is a smaller hospital. You build this hospital that you were talking about. One would argue... On day one, you're still going to be behind. Would Surrey even need a, a, or a conversation on even a fourth hospital? Because if it's a, this, they're similar in size, at the end of the day, maybe give or take thirty or forty thousand, well, is well, Surrey well, sure. still going to be, uh, uh, you know, under when it comes to healthcare, still not have enough healthcare facilities compared to a community like Vancouver?
2: So, so let me give you an example of BC Children's and Women's, right, which was built on the site it's at many years ago, and it's been uh, rebuilt and improved and modernized on that site, right? Um, if we were building a children's hospital today in Metro Vancouver, I mean, that area of Vancouver, the Shaughnessy area of Vancouver, doesn't have very many children. It serves the whole province, so it has some proximity to the airport, right? It serves the province. It's a provincial hospital. Um, in Vancouver, they, of course, have healthcare needs, but Surrey is the only community in B.C. that's going to repl- get a net new hospital, we're rebuilding St. Paul's. It was built in 1910, and there was a business plan in 2002. They didn't finish it. They didn't even start it. Like, there was still a business plan stage 15 years later. And so we're rebuilding that because the current facility um, isn't up to standard, and we need it to be up to standard. But yes, Surrey has significant demand. So what you do by building a community hospital with a cancer center is you do create more options on the Surrey Memorial site. And we're gonna to have to, yes, expand care in Surrey. How you do that is different in different places. Like the UBC hospital, not a lot of inpatient. Mount St. Joseph, there's some inpatient, some long-term care, and then you got VGH in St. Paul's. But are we gonna to have to continue to increase um, um, support in communities such as Abbotsford that are growing, communities such as Surrey that are growing. Of course, we're doing it north of the Fraser with the new projects in Royal Columbia and in Burnaby Hospital, which is seeing a significant increase. Yes, we're going to have to meet demand uh, for health care. And that's why we have the largest capital plan in history. And people can argue it takes too long to build a hospital, but you have to start. And that's what didn't happen for a long time.
0: Minister, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate
3: it. Hey, anytime. Take care, Jeff.
0: Now, this all comes after 30 physicians in in obstetrics and gynecology went public citing long-standing problems at Surrey Memorial, uh, especially in uh, the Surrey uh, ER room, but it's not the only hospital. Uh, dealing with issues uh, in ER. Uh, Our next guest says that uh, he's uh, had his inbox flooded with requests to help cover shifts in emergency departments across the province. Dr. Anthony Fong is an emergency physician and clinical assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at UBC. Dr. Fong, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jess. Uh, when did you first notice the challenge? I mean, there's always challenges in healthcare. And let's 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 be open about that. But when did you start start getting requests, or when did you notice a greater challenge for ERs uh, in and around Vancouver and our province?
3: Yeah, so I think the situation around rural ERs has always been. Uh, In history, they've always been quite lean. Mm -hmm. And it's somewhere around last year where we started to see a trend of in uh, especially the small urban sites and urban sites of shortages causing real problems. And so, you know, over the last month, I was just counting the number of urgent uh, emails and emails marked as extremely urgent or crisis and I've received about one or two a day, so like fifty or sixty of them in the last month. Uh,
0: how much of this is systemic, and how much of this is COVID-related? In your mind?
3: Oh, I think it's systemic. Um, the impact of covid uh it definitely has—it uh, definitely has contributed to the problem. But I think this is a statement as to the the deeper problem of a systemic failure to plan for healthcare resources in terms of, you know, planning for the family doctors in terms of the multiple roles that we play in the healthcare system.
0: Um, and when do you think that started? I mean, some have said this is an issue that actually started in the 1990s in regards to how we uh, train doctors or even open up spaces to train doctors in, 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 um, in universities. Uh, when did this start in your mind?
3: So I've been in practice for about 15 years, mm-hmm. and I think things in rural areas have always been kind of tight. And where I first started to notice uh, things falling apart in the urban sites with some time around, I would say it was last year.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and we started to see a real loss of faith in due process within, you know, amongst healthcare workers. And we started to see a lot of patients speaking out about their terrible experiences in the ER. You know, some are spending days in the ER as admitted patients, not having anyone to care for them in the way that they would receive care upstairs, which we know is better for them. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, are, are you able to do any of these shifts when you see these urgent care requests coming, you or your colleagues? Uh, I mean, I know you already probably are very busy. I've never met a doctor who isn't busy, but are, are your colleagues able to to help in some cases in, in these rural communities?
3: I think uh, many of us are trying to help out. The problem is that once you have a crisis in both rural and urban areas, then you have a problem where, you know, I'm expected to cover for my own colleagues in the city, in Vancouver where I work, and that, you know, there's just tension pulling me in both directions because these rural sites, which, you know, I've worked for Northern Health as well as Island Health, and I keep on getting updates from the interior as well, these keep uh, giving me updates that are, to be honest, distressing.
0: Um, how do we fix this then, moving forward? Uh, you know, I had the health minister on, and he was talking about what he inherited uh, and what they've been doing. And generally, you know, any elected official—they're trying to say, "Look, we're, we're doing our best. We have put more money into the system, uh, but there's a lot of frustration." In which we, we hear on the uh, open line from our listeners. What do you see? What do you think needs to be done short term? And by that, I mean immediately to help someone like yourself and your colleagues. And in the medium and long term, what kind of things would you like to see done?
3: Well, I think no one solution is going to fix this. Um, You know, the the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians is right now uh, drafting a policy that uh, intends to try to get a, a system-wide approach to this problem. I think whatever is adopted, there has to be a strategic plan. Mm-hmm. There has to be collaboration with healthcare workers and with patients. And whatever process is adopted has to be transparent. And I think the time for minimizing the lived experiences of patients and healthcare workers who are you know, experiencing a, a system that's not functioning as it should, uh, this minimizing should end. Uh, is the system up to it in regards to what you just said
0: is the system. And by system, I mean the healthcare system, our elected officials, governance, uh, the ability to take, and it's a very complex system. And as I somebody in government, it is very complex, our healthcare system. It eats up 40% of our provincial budget. It is vast, lots of entrenched interests as well. Um, Is the system, I mean, I mean, by that, I mean all of us, is it capable of doing what you are asking for?
3: Yeah, I think the, the people are there. I mean, the healthcare system is full of great people, but as a system, we all need to organize ourselves really right now. And, you know, as for the quality and the expertise, I think it's out there. And, you know, if, if there's just enough dialogue and, and collaboration and transparency, I think things could work.
0: Dr. Fong, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Jeff. Bank of Canada. Raised its overnight rate by twenty five basis points to four point seven five percent uh today uh the central bank's key interest rate has not been this high. get this since April of two thousand and one that 's twenty two Uh, years ago now the central bank says the the demand in the economy has rebounded with 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 surprisingly strong customer spending housing market activity has picked up again and the Canadian labor market remains tight so for a variety of reasons uh, they decided to hike rates now today Prime Minister Trudeau says the Bank of Canada is doing the right thing by bringing down inflation that's one of the reasons why um, it raised its overnight rate by 25 basis points take a listen
2: the Bank of Canada is acting to bring down interest, uh, bring down uh, inflation, and it's working. Our inflation is coming down. At the same time, our job as a government is to be there to support Canadians, to be there with supports for families, to be there with supports for kids who need dental care,
0: would be there for supports for Canadians who are struggling right now. Now, Prime Minister Trudeau's comments uh, came uh, as the opposition aggressively challenged uh, the government's uh, economic. Economic policy. Uh, the uh, Conservative Party leader uh, Pierre Poilievre says the Bank of Canada is only acting and doing what it's doing because of uh, incredibly strong federal government spending, too much spending uh, and not enough saving. Take a listen.
1: Interest rates are now 19 times higher than they were a year ago. The governor of the Bank of Canada, the former Liberal finance minister, countless other experts agreed that the Prime Minister's deficits are ballooning inflation and therefore interest rates.
0: So there is, of course, a political uh, conversation in and around uh, the the increase today. But what's this mean to you, uh, to your family finances? And perhaps you have a mortgage or a variable rate mortgage, or maybe you're going to renew very soon. Well, Joining me now to talk about today's uh, hike of 25 basis points is Ron Butler. He is a mortgage broker at Butler Mortgages. Ron, thank you for joining us.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, uh, was this rate
0: hike a surprise for you?
1: It was a surprise. Uh, 21 out of 23 economists surveyed last week believed there would be no change, and obviously there has been a change. Um, uh, it's it's It came a bit out of left field. It was not telegraphed, uh, but it's happened, and here we are.
3: What's
0: this mean in your mind uh, for the average consumer, somebody uh, in the midst of a, uh, with a mortgage, perhaps heading into a renewal Uh, How much of an impact do you think this is going to have on the average person's um, uh, pocketbook?
1: This is definitely impactful because it has a twofold effect. Obviously, uh, Bank of Canada has raised their rate by a quarter percent. Every commercial bank in Canada by the end of the day tomorrow will have raised their prime rate by a quarter percent. This means that every variable rate mortgage in Canada will go up a quarter percent. Every uh, home equity line of credit will go up a quarter percent. And some of these rates are becoming very high. The new bank bank prime in Canada is 6.95 with uh, equity lines on your house in the mid-sevens now. Like this is just just a year ago, they were 2.95. So that's just an incredible jump. Uh, And the effect on fixed rates is actually potentially worse. We have seen two-year, three-year, four-year, five-year fixed rates increase over the last two and a half weeks, having some kind of anticipation of what might be going on. They've gone up nearly uh, half of 1%. Some of them have gone up as much as three-quarters of 1%. And now this morning, they've all jumped. They, by, by the end of next week, with the bond yield increase that we're seeing, right now on my screen, uh, five-year bond yields up nearly 7% just on today's news. That will result in another significant increase in fixed rates we 'll probably see from the low mark of about a month ago to next week we 'll probably see a one percent increase in all types of fixed rates two year, one year, three year, five year all fixed rates up probably one percent by the end of next week.
0: Uh, when I heard the news this morning, um, you know we had a, had a there was a medium a uh, sized developer in Richmond who walked away from uh, condo development. It was in the news here uh, just last week. The money was returned to, uh, to those who uh, had uh, pre-purchased the condos. Uh, they were in the, about to start construction, but these rates just basically took the whole business plan for this condo development and just turned it upside down. I was talking to a major developer last week at a housing symposium. The amount of um, developers who have purchased land in the midst of putting the project together have now just want to sell the projects uh, to bigger developers because the math just doesn't work in regards to developing right now. I mean, this, uh, when I I look at this, I could never mind just uh, consumers, developers themselves. Nobody wants to do anything right now just because everything is so volatile because potentially there could be more increases coming.
1: I talked to an executive at a big five bank just a month ago. He advised me that within that bank in the previous rolling 12 months, they had not done one single land development loan in 12 months. So everything you're saying is absolutely factual. We are watching um, new home starts of all types, multifamily, you name it, all types slowing from the year 2021. Less starts last year in 22. There'll be fewer starts again this year. And that's on top of a million new Canadians coming to the country last year, and potentially maybe another million this year. Uh, so yeah, this is, this is about as serious as it gets. When uh, politicians use the word housing crisis, it may not mean too much to them because they're not having a crisis, but it actually is the right words to use because if we're seeing reduced housing starts, no development lending, and more immigration, it's just math and it's all bad.
0: Uh, yeah, we're speaking to um, the president of the Independent Contractors uh, uh, right after this conversation, and, uh, you know, we're uh, there's a talk of the RBC report that came out last month talking about, you know, we need over 800,000 homes in Canada per year to be built every year until 2030 just to keep up with the growth that you're talking about. But our housing starts peaked in 1972, I think it was with just over
1: 200. That was housing starts per capita, yes. Housing starts per capita peaked in 1972. They're down 50%, again, per capita. The country's grown enormously in 50 years, but per capita, they have dropped 50%. Housing starts are down 50% from the peak per capita year in 1972.
0: So there's almost like there's two crises here. Number one, uh, those that uh, perhaps borrowed a lot, uh, not expecting the increases that we're seeing. So there is an immediate crisis, which is, can I uh, keep paying my mortgage? Uh, and then there's the second issue if developers aren't building because their business model is not completely blown up, dealing with future growth, by future, I mean, two years from now, five years from now, the housing isn't going to be there.
1: Um, yeah. I mean, the word crisis is appropriate because it's, it's like you're sleepwalking into a disaster all levels of government talk about housing, they talk about affordability, they talk about increased housing, and here we are, still nothing happening. L- reduced starts, uh, development at a standstill. Uh, what in the world is going to happen in three years? We need all level and, and of course the, the constant refrain that well, the federal government's in charge of immigration, and the provinces are in charge of housing well. At this moment in time, we have to talk about a desperate coming together of these two entities. Someone has to do something and do it soon, because without attention to the housing in Canada, we're all going to have more problems. I mean, sure, people who have got paid for houses in Shaughnessy are probably fine, but the rest of Canada, the young people of Canada, the new immigrants coming to Canada, this is a legitimate crisis that must be addressed.
0: And this is speculation, of course, but what do you think Tiff Macklin uh, is actually seeing to say, you know, we're going to raise rates? What do you think he's looking at?
1: Well, in some ways, Tiff Macklin is blameless. Uh, what he, he has good insight into the exact positioning of inflation. He sees in all likelihood that the next report we we see is probably not going to be that promising. He understands that the economy continues to grow. He understands that there is really no job loss in this country of any kind. There's just, just, just job growth. And this tells him that unless he can find something to radically slow the economy, that inflation will continue. And he just has one job, one job, keep inflation down. So if you only have one job, every, you're, you're the hammer and everything looks like a nail. So you have to take actions that you can to get that one job complete and get inflation down. So the really concerning thing, to my mind, is this may not be the last increase. There may be more increases late in the summer, early fall, and that is truly worrisome for so many Canadians. Mm -hmm.
0: A final question to you. If someone has to renew their mortgage or is carrying a significant amount of debt, um, and they came to you for advice, what would you tell them today?
1: We're telling everybody the same thing, uh, that today, uh, you should, if your mortgage is coming up for renewal, do not take a variable mortgage under any circumstances. Pay attention to the lowest possible rate that's available on a two- or three-year fixed-rate mortgage. Uh, give yourself some security, but don't go long, because sometime in the next two years, rates will fall. They just have to. The economy is a cycle after all. And once those rates start to fall, you don't want to have another three years left on your mortgage at, higher, at a higher rate. So two-year, three-year fixed rates, shop as hard as you possibly can to find the best possible deal, and also turn to lenders to see if you can get or, uh, or amortization increased to the maximum of 30 years, and that might help you with your payment. So there are strategies. Seek out mortgage professionals who can give you good advice, and there are some strategies that will help. Nothing is, is going to solve this really difficult rate environment we're in right now, but you can get help, and there are some strategies.
0: Ron, thanks for your time today, my friend.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: Well, with our housing stock already severely strained, we'll soon need to find a way to accommodate a record surge in new Canadians. Now, a recent RBC report on housing says Canada needs to build, get this, nearly 6 million new homes by 2030. That's a 40% increase as demand due to internal growth and immigration accelerates can we actually do it think about that for a second with high interest rates which we just talked about municipal red tape and a skills trade shortage joining me now to discuss the issue is chris gardner president of the independent contractors and businesses association chris thank you for joining us today
4: thank you john it's great to be on the show
0: Uh, Let's talk a little bit about housing. Obviously, interest rates uh, uh, went up by a quarter point today. Uh, Not a surprise for some, but very surprising, I'm sure, for others, especially uh, if you're carrying a a mortgage or if you have to negotiate. But let's talk a little bit about actually building housing. In the context of today's announcement and the need to continue to build housing across this country, especially in in here in British Columbia, how do you view today?
4: Well, listen. We uh, we've been in a, a in a housing the, the words housing and crisis have are are, are together uh, in British Columbia uh, have have been this way for the last two decades. And if you look at CMHC, the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, they said that the last time housing was affordable in Vancouver and other major centers in uh, in Canada was in 2003. So that was effectively a generation ago. And so the increase in interest rates today, and if you think of what's happened, interest rates were, you know, a quarter of a percentage point, the Bank of Canada rate, back in February of 2022. So just a little over a year later, uh, we're at 4.75%. Uh, that uh, that's, incre- that's an historic increase in interest rates. So that's putting pressure on, uh, on housing affordability to the point you just raised. Um, and so affordability is going in the wrong direction uh, for Canadians and for British Columbia.
0: Now there has been much said. I was just at a at a, a housing symposium last week in in Maple Ridge for uh, for-profit housing and non-profit housing. Uh, we had government officials there, including the minister. We had developers there, uh, all uh, facets of the housing industry. I think everybody generally agrees we need to be building more housing. What do the numbers? say to you, and I know RBC had a report recently, walk me through what the numbers say and where your concerns lie.
4: Well, yeah, every, as you pointed out, every single major analysis by a think tank, a bank, uh, real estate um, uh, analysts have all point to the same thing. The issue is supply. We have not been able to bring enough new housing onto the market. And so if you go back to 1972 when Canada's population was 22 million people, we brought onto the, onto the market new homes in 1972 uh, in the order of about 250,000. So last year, 50 years later in 2022, um, with a population of 39 million, we brought onto the market a fewer number of houses, about 220,000 units. So 30,000 less. So in 50 years, in two generations, we have not been able to increase in any measurable way uh, the increase in supply of new housing. And so the RBC report that you mentioned that came out in May said that Canada needs to build about 5.8 million new homes between now and 2030. That's a little over 800,000 homes a year. So how on earth are we going to move from just a little over 200,000 homes a year to about 800,000 homes a year? Uh, To have any hope of reaching that target, we are going to have to do things very, very differently uh, than we have been. And so the challenge before us is enormous.
0: Uh, I'm going to go through the numbers again. So basically 5.8 million homes, according to RBC, need to be built in Canada by 2030 because of uh, a lack of housing and immigration. Uh, So it's about a 40% increase uh, from today that comes out to what 830,000 new homes need to be built in Canada every single year for the next seven years. Uh, mm-hmm. And as you said we build only about 220,000 new homes and that hasn't changed since 1972 give or take a few thousand here or there. So That's we right. somehow the, so ultimately the math doesn't work here and if you, if you don't do that, then you got to crunch again. you got to crunch not just on people who want to buy homes but also ultimately, I guess it would impact the rental, re- rental business as well.
4: Yeah, that's right, and, and, and you know, we, um, we, if you look at the, the issues, the challenge we have is that housing has become an, an, an intensely political issue. And so if you go to city halls, and I was at City Hall um, last week, speaking before uh, de- the Development Permit Board, uh, related to one hundred and eleven new units that were proposed uh, on a site in downtown Vancouver, this site is an empty parking lot it's been an empty parking lot for a decade. Um, and if you know I was speaker of the sixty people who were aligned who registered to speak, only four were speaking in favor of the project, and therein lies the challenge. We need more supply, but every time a new project is proposed, people will say, the building is too, uh, the, the project, it's the tower is too, too tall. Um, it's not right for this neighborhood. There'll be too much noise. The views will be obstructed. Like, you can just go down. There's a list as long as your arm about why we shouldn't build. And the challenge then is that councils get nervous and everything starts to slow down. And so if we're going to have any hope of making a measurable increase and the number of new homes we're bringing onto the market, we're going to have to dramatically change our thinking. And that's going to require um, city halls moving faster, uh, reducing red tape and regulation, reducing the costs they're imposing onto builders and developers, and for the public to embrace density. Without density, uh, we just aren't going to get to where we need to be in terms of the supply of uh, housing on the market.
0: We are speaking to Chris Gardner from the ICBA. We were sp- speaking a little bit about the RBC report that came out last month, basically saying we need almost 6 million new homes in Canada by 2030 because of uh, the challenges or lack of housing presently. And of course, with our immigration boom, and as Chris said, uh, we're averaging about 220,000 new homes that we build every year, yet we need 830,000 new homes annually to be built. So the math doesn't work. Chris, let's talk about a little bit about your business. You, you represent uh, independent contractors. Uh, give me a sense of what it is like for you and your members in you know, training the next generation. One thing, it's one thing about building these things, but you need people to build these homes. Uh, how are we doing in regards to enticing people to get into the construction trades, number one? And how is training going in regards to getting as many of these people trained up and working on, on these job sites?
4: Well, there's a couple of challenges that, that our economy is facing. And one is we're going over a demographic cliff. So if you think about what happened in British Columbia last year, for the first time ever, more people died than were born in British Columbia. Uh, We've never had that before, so we're going through uh, a huge crisis and a a demographic shift that is going to have significant repercussions in our economy. And so there's two ways through this. One is technology, and construction is a technology story. Um, The way we design buildings, build them, is rapidly changing because of the use of technology. Uh, and artificial intelligence will bring a whole new wave of opportunity um, for construction contractors. And the second is immigration. And there's been a lot, of, a lot of debate and discussion about immigration. We are taking in record numbers of people, about 500,000 this year, next year, and the year after. And so what is that going to require? Well, that's going to require building new homes because those people are going to need to rent or buy homes. But it's also going to require investment in hospitals and schools and infrastructure. So we've got to be able to build faster and approve projects in in, in much faster timelines than we're doing now. The World Bank ranks Canada number sixty four in the world in the length of time it takes to approve a construction project. That's an embarrassing number. We we've got to we've got to build faster. And um, and so in terms of the people. Um, if you want to get a Red Seal designation in a construction trade in British Columbia, we face two challenges, a shortage of training spaces and a shortage of instructors. So it can take you eight to 10 years to complete your four-year program. And when I say it's a four-year program, it's six weeks in class roughly each year for four years. The rest of the of the training happens on site where, where naturally it would happen when you're working uh, every day on projects besides experienced uh, and, and trained people. So, we've got to invest more in training spaces and we've got to tell young people in high schools about the exciting career opportunities in construction. You know, if if a young person says, "Hey, I'd like to start a business." The answer that a high school counselor is going to give them is, "Okay, well you've got to go to UBC or SFU and and go study commerce." They don't say And what they should be saying is consider the trades, learn a skill, learn a trade, and start your own business. Every single construction company in this province was started by a family, by an individual who took a risk, got some experience. The ability and the exciting opportunities in construction are unbelievable, but we don't tell that message to kids. Because everyone is so focused on their phones and developing apps and, you know, you're going to work for Facebook or Amazon. And and that's a challenging narrative to overcome, but we've got to do a much better job of getting that message to kids. Uh,
0: Are you hopeful here that the, I mean, it's not even a business challenge. It seems to be a psychological one or a political one where we do have to streamline how we approve projects and, and build more housing. Ontario seems to be actually its a provincial government there is basically telling the city get on with it, or we're going to start rezoning ourselves. British Columbia hasn't gone that far yet, but even with their housing naughty list, they're slowly edging in that direction. One would assume, especially if these cities don't move forward and show movement. Do you generally like what the province is doing here, or do you think um, there are other ways to do to get more housing built, or do you think they should go even further in regards to just compelling these cities? to get on with it?
4: Well, I think there's a lot of finger pointing between the federal, provincial, and local levels of government. And I think the big problem as a taxpayer, as a homeowner, as, a, as someone who wants to buy a home, if you look at these three levels of government, they can't figure things out. They, everyone blames everyone else. And, you know, the province will say the feds isn't doing enough. The province will say city halls aren't doing enough. City halls will say, well, all these services are being downloaded on us. And so, as a taxpayer, as a home buyer, you don't really know who to believe. The only thing you know is that affordability is going in the wrong direction. So, the first task is for the three levels of government to get their act together. And it goes from everything from you know the, the 500,000 immigrants that are going to come into Canada. We're going to go We're going to recruit all these folks. But then when they come here, we're not building enough housing. We've got to invest more in hospitals and the infrastructure like schools and roads and bridges. Um, providing training opportunities for them and recognizing their credentials. You know, we've got a, a challenge in our healthcare system and we're going out recruiting nurses and doctors. But when they get here, the feds open the door and say, come on in. And they get here and the provinces say, well, hang out. You know, it's going to take you two, three, four years before you recognize your credentials. So they're not working together in collaboration and housing is exactly. Uh, it's in that similar basket of areas where governments are not coordinated and they're not working together. There's just too much finger pointing. So do I think that if the feds, the province, and cities figure it out and work, whether that's a carrot and stick approach, but something's got to change. Because if it doesn't, we're going to have another generation of Canadians who are effectively going to give up on ever owning a home.
0: Chris, thank you so much for your time today. really appreciate it.
4: Great. Thank you, Jazz. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show
0: podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.